If there is no life after death, if there is no resurrection of the body, if there is no final judgment of right and wrong and the establishment of justice, it has a direct impact on your life here and now today in two very important ways. The first is justice itself, and that there would be no justice. And I'm not talking simply about the secret crimes that happen in the night, in the darkness, that are never reported, or to the great atrocities of nation against nation or race against race. I'm not talking about a justice where there's crime and then punishment. To best see it, I call to mind what happened this week down in Florida in a courtroom where the judge sentenced the school shooter to consecutive life sentences rather than the death sentence. The parents who were of these children who were killed were, many of them, quite upset that such a lenient sentence was given. They felt justice was not done. The kind of justice that I'm talking about would have you look at those parents as if they were you and realize that even if the shooter was killed, it still would not set right in their hearts what has been taken. The kind of justice that I'm talking about that would set their hearts at ease is if they had their child back, right? If not only that they had their child back, but all of the trauma and the the grief and the sorrows that they have experienced, are experiencing, and will experience until they die, was set right and removed. The kind of justice that demands life after death is the kind of justice where we receive back what was lost in our hearts and in our lives. Not only if there is no life after death, if death is everything, and it's the end of everything, not only is there no justice, but there is no enduring love. For those of you who have children, think about how quickly they grow up, right? And if you have grandchildren, you know, our little peanut was just six months ago born, and now he's he's getting bigger, you know? And, And then eventually you say goodbye to everyone that you love. There is, there would be no enduring love without life after death. Interesting enough, they've studied this, poll takers, and from 1944 until 2014, they have been asking this question in America, or to Americans, do you believe in life after death? What do you think this statistic is? It's been almost consistent from 44 to 2014 at around 73 to 75% of Americans believe in life after death in some way. Okay. But just because we believe in it doesn't make it so and doesn't mean that there aren't a lot of questions. Like, okay, so we're going to have life after death. What kind of body are we going to have? Right? And we're not the first people to wonder about that. In fact, the early Christians asked Paul, like, what's going to happen? And Paul wrote in his letters, okay, so the body is mortal, right? It's 
sown into the ground, but it's raised immortal. It is a body of dishonor and that it's falling apart, right? It's like a tent being taken down slow by slow piece, but it's going to be raised glorious. And the best picture that we have of what our bodies will be like is to look at the resurrected body of Jesus. He ate with his disciples after the resurrection with his new body. He could be hugged and touched and talked to and listened to. It was a real physical body. That's what awaits us, and yet a glorious body that cannot and will not ever die. Well, those are some of the easier questions. You know, what about our memories? Are we going to remember things from this life? Because I've got some really great memories I'd hate to miss out on and forget about, and I have some really horrible things that I'd like to forget and not want to take with me into all eternity. So what does God do with those memories? And, and, and how, how could we be happy for all eternity if we didn't have everyone that we loved with us, right? We, we got a lot of questions, and some of them have clear answers from the Bible. Some of them remain mysteries and that it just doesn't say. But for those that are mysteries, we go back to what has been said, and we stand there. And we are reminded by John, who was allowed to see what was to come in this life after death, and that what awaits us is the no tears place. John said, God dries every tear from our eyes. There is no sorrow or death or dying or pain, for that old order of way is is put away and the new has come. So whatever awaits us, God has thought about all of the things And he has an answer. And when we hear and when we experience and we live in that answer, we will rejoice and give thanks to him. You are good and your love endures forever. So there are those questions that we ask that have answers, those that remain mysteries, but there's a whole other category of questions. They're not asked to gain information or to help calm and bring peace to my heart. There's a whole category of questions that are meant to Gotcha! Put people in their place. Show how foolish they are. And that's exactly the kind of question that a group of uh, religious leaders came to Jesus with. Normally, the opposition of Jesus is a group called the Pharisees. We're pretty familiar with Pharisees, and they're the people that, you know, take the Bible and try and do it. Whatever laws, commandments, whatever religious activity, they did it. And they're really good and conscientious and pious people. This other group, this, we're not talking about the Pharisees now. We're talking about the Sadducees. Well, who were they? They were a whole different animal. Oh, yeah. They, they only believed the first five books of the Bible were true. The others, nah, just the books of Moses. They were the people who were in charge of the temple life, in charge of politics of the day. They were the elites, the aristocrats. Perhaps you can see why Jesus would be threatening to them. If he is the Messiah, he's in charge and not them. And so they need to come up with some way to put Jesus in his place that they might remain in their superiority, in their in charge and in control life. And so uh, we don't know why they didn't believe in life after death, but we do know how they argued it. They used a classic debate strategy in Latin called reductio ad absurdum. 
Reduce them to absurdity. It's where you take their argument, the opponents, their ideas, their assertions, and you just show the logical conclusion of all of that is just ridiculous. And they had the perfect question for Jesus. Probably happened not too long in their society and everyone was kind of talking about it. Because in those first five books of Moses, it's a rule that if you get married and you don't have kids... Your lucky brother has to do the job. So, And then this one family had seven brothers. And, well, okay, there's the question, Jesus. Whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection? See how this question is bait in the water? How there's a hook in it? Yeah. If Jesus agrees that the resurrection's a real deal, they can just pull hard on the line, reel him in, and hold him up for everyone to see, all of their Sadducees. Look at this guy. He believes in the resurrection. Look how ridiculous this is. He is not (laughs) worth following. Now, it's a very powerful way to argue emotionally because anyone who hears about this poor woman who's now stuck with seven brothers, like, don't want that, okay? And so, yeah, that's ridiculous, all right? It's very powerful when it comes to emotions, but not logic. It's one of the weakest ways to debate. And any first-year debate student knows you don't really go that route because the whole argument assumes that this uh, conclusion is the only possible outcome for this poor woman. And, And there is, everything's going to that pinpoint. Well... They were waiting to reel Jesus in. And even though it was a very weak kind of argument, do you know it's a very common way that you and I think about God as well? I know. Anytime you hear something about the faith that you kind of go, don't know about that. Anytime you hear a little something in the Bible and you go, wow, I can't believe God is that way. You, with those questions and and that superiority of I know best, I'm in control, I know what's how life really ought to be, you you throw the bait into the water with the hook, knowing that if if someone in the faith were to answer that question, you could just reel them in and see, see how silly this is. Now, a lot of these questions usually involve our control of life and, and the pain and suffering that we have. And, and so one of those bait questions is, why does God allow us to suffer? A good God wouldn't do that, right? And you have that bait in the water just ready to pull it in. Or what kind of God would throw decent people into hell, Right? What kind of God would throw people into hell that just, you know, didn't didn't have a chance to know about him? Got the bait in the water. Just waiting for the... mm. Well, as we have all these kinds of of questions with their baits and their hook, we find that we're the ones being baited. And the hook is actually in us. For when we take those questions and we stand over God in superiority, we are being drugged. We are being cast away from him, his love, and his truth. You know, I've got a pretty famous example of this from someone that you have heard of, someone by the name of Steve Jobs. And he's the the co-founder of Apple Computer, right? 
Did you know that he was once a Lutheran? I know. He went through confirmation class. And it was during that time of confirmation class when you're learning, you know, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. He's everyone's salvation, but he's the only salvation. It was at that time in, in world history that we're also noticing the famines in Africa. And it was in all of the papers and magazines. That's how we used to communicate back then. And, and, and so he held up this magazine in his class and and had pictures of starving children in Africa. And with his baited question to his pastor, he asked, Will God send these children to hell if they don't know Jesus? That's a really good question, right? I mean, ooh, that is bait with a hook. And oh my, because any thinking person would go, Well, God wouldn't do that. Right? You know, that would be really mean of God and really nasty, and, and God can't be that way. And well, we don't know how the pastor answered, but we do know that that baited question hooked Steve Jobs. And he never returned to the Christian faith, he practiced Buddhism in the later part of his life. See, none of us are immune to a really good question in which we really need the answer to be our answer. So, how did Jesus answer the baited questions? He's got the Sadducees in front of him. What's he going to say to them? Well, there are three cords that Jesus weaves together to cast out to those who are lost to pull us safely ashore. And as he looks at the Sadducees, he doesn't look at them with eyes of, you know, condemnation or contempt or anger. Jesus loves his enemies, even those who are trying to hook him and destroy him. And so in this great love, he begins this three-part answer, which, which is also for us, which also answers all of our baited questions. He, says, he begins by saying, first, check and see if you have enough data to draw your conclusion." He agrees that, yes, in this world and in this life, we are married, we're given in marriage, and, and that's how it works here. But in the life to come, our primary relationship, unlike here, where it's husband and wife and families and parents and children, those are the building blocks of society here. That's not how it will be in the life to come. Our primary relationship is with God and that we are his children and there we relate primarily with him and then secondarily with one another now that doesn't mean that we will love the people we love now any less in fact we can only love them more without all of our sin but our primary relationship is that we are children of God sons and daughters of the resurrection so you need enough data and then the second cord that Jesus weaves is that go back to the scriptures. And so he went to the place in the Bible that these Sadducees believed was true in the first five books of Moses. And he had them listen to the very mouth of God as he described himself. He said, did not God say that I am the God of Abraham and Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of your fathers? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living and the third cord he wove would have them look at the very nature of God. And that 
He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. All are alive to him. His very nature is that he creates life. It is his to give and his to keep and sustain, and he sustains it. All are alive to him. So did his answer convince everyone? And they're like, ooh. Yeah. Well, some in the crowd go, okay, I'm not going to ask you any questions. But the, the point is, Jesus wasn't trying to win the debate. He wasn't trying to show how foolish they were and hold them up and say, see, Jesus loves his enemy. And he desires to save them, to make them worthy of the resurrection. And to do that, Jesus allowed two baited questions to hook him. Do you remember what they were? He's standing before the Sanhedrin, and they're spit-firing. Are you the son of the living God? It's a, it's a baited question. They will crucify him with a yes answer. And he says yes. He stands before Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? He has the, the power to condemn or to release. I am the king of the Jews. And Jesus is literally pierced through for all of our baited questions, for all of our times that we stand in judgment of God and say, I can't believe you would do that. I can't believe you're the kind of God who allows that to happen. What kind of loving God does it? He takes our rebellion, our condemnation, all of our sin upon himself there at the cross to make us worthy children of the resurrection where he bears our sin. And there in his resurrection, he brings life now and life forever. So Jesus offers life to the starving people in any nation. He offers life to you right now with all of your questions. Like, I don't know if I can believe in a God like this. Jesus offers a way out through himself as he bears our rebellion. He is the life and the way and the truth. And he is here for you and for me. And so we look to the cross of Jesus. Am I worthy of the resurrection? Am I worthy of eternal life? You look to the cross and there God says, yes, a thousand times you are mine. You are alive to me in Jesus. Amen.